Welcome to Picked Voices, the interview series conducted by faculty of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking, with notable members of the broader Picked community. Our goal is to present our community with a variety of voices across the spectrum of the humanities and critical thinking. My name is Christophe van Houten, and today I am joined from the other side of the world by David Neuheiser, research fellow in the Institute for Crit Religion and Critical Inquiry at the Australian Catholic University, who will be with me for two consecutive Voices podcasts, as we have an awful lot to discuss. Hello, David, and welcome. Thank a couple you, of Hello, David. A couple of days ago, I had a podcast with a colleague, Carlos Alzani, and we talked about Giorgio Agamben's theory of the state of exception. Besides offering some clarification on the terminology and especially the implications of the way we are almost all living in, in today in this state of exception because of the COVID-19 pandemic, it was also a means to demonstrate how philosophy is not some ethereal affair that has nothing to do with real life, but that it is, and probably even more so in exceptional situations like the one we are living in today, of fundamental importance in contextualizing what we are going through, questioning and problematizing what appears to be normal, obvious or inevitable. And also today's discussion will stress this importance of philosophy and its role of contextualizer and problemizer once again. Our discussion today will be somewhat related to the previous one, but instead of focusing on the philosophical dubious legal consequences of our current extraordinary way of living, we will focus on the philosophical implications and possible problems of the religious or even theological implications and consequences of how we live today. Now, this reference to religion, theology, or God, whom I hadn't mentioned in precedence, might sound strange, especially in the Western or Westernized world. But in other parts of the world, parts that compose of a much larger section than the Westernized one, God and religion is very much part in the discussion regarding this pandemic. And honestly speaking, I'm not so very convinced these aspects are missing from our discourse either. If anything, they are probably only better hidden. But anyway, considering, David, your long, your years of research in these interdisciplinary fields of philosophy and theology, how would you comment, philosophically speaking, these, those who consider this pandemic, or for that case, any other extraordinary situation, as caused, or maybe just simply related to, some sort of divine intervention? Maybe even as a punishment from God. That said, is this what we are living through? a close or a near experience of eschatological times? Yeah, thanks, Christoph. I, I find the question quite moving and resonant because I think the, I think the experience that you described, the people who try to tell a story about the pandemic that makes it um, sensible in a way by, by treating it as an act of God, I think that response is really understandable. So... A lot of the figures that I work on in both theology and philosophy are focused on the insight that uncertainty is genuinely quite destabilizing. And so it, it can be comforting to construct a narrative within which the crisis that we're living has a kind of ultimate meaning. Uh, there's a reassurance in that, but I think it's also quite dangerous. So you can think about it like this. The, I think that the claim that God intends the suffering that we're seeing 
can give it a kind of um, can give it a kind of divine warrant or authority that makes it harder to find ways to alleviate suffering. So if if it's the case that God is trying to punish particular people, that can discourage people who believe that from taking steps to address the situation. And for that reason, I think there's a danger that it actually reinforces the prejudices that people already hold. So uh, as you know, I uh, published a book just last year called Hope in a Secular Age. It's published by Cambridge University Press. And it was really focused on this problem. So uh, I deal with some ancient Christian authors and contemporary philosophers who worry in similar ways about the way in which this tendency to provide a sort of overarching story can be ethically and politically debilitating. So to take one example that's important for me, in the negative theology or apophatic theology of someone like Dionysius the Areopagite is a fifth century Christian monk. In his view, the claim that some believers make to know God and to know God's purposes in the world actually functions as a projection of themselves. So it turns God into an idol. And Dionysius tries to resist this tendency by arguing that actually the Christian God, because God is the creator of everything, is beyond every category of human thought. So uh, in similar fashion, but in a very different idiom, um, in my view, uh, Jacques Derrida, who uh, died about 20 years ago, French philosopher, he argues that the, the philosophical claim to possess metaphysical certainty is, is actually an attempt to try to contain this existential uncertainty that people feel. But the problem is that it actually promises a stability that's fragile, it's prone to shatter, because in his view, uh, things are in fact quite, quite fluid and unstable. So in these two very different traditions, these authors differ in, in really profound ways in terms of their commitments. But I think they both share this sense that it's, it's dangerous to act as if things are more certain than they are. And in articulating this view, they actually both draw, draw on an alternative vision of eschatology. So you allude in your question to a sort of vision of eschatological times, or which is to say a sort of vision of the last things. For Derrida and Dionysius both, in my reading, they uh, take up an eschatological ideal that focuses less on describing what's to come in detail. And instead, they focus on the way that we, we relate as people to a future that remains utterly unknowable. So uh, in, in my terms, both authors describe a disposition towards the future, which can be understood in terms of hope, which is to say they acknowledge the uncertainty that's real without being crushed by it. And I think that's a really important alternative to the temptation to uh, treat this pandemic as if it's some sort of divine judgment that we know the meaning of now. As you know, there's also one more aspect closely related to this uh, aspect of a possi possible divine intervention, and that is exact the, the that is the exact uh, opposite, uh, as has been uh, seen on numerous occasions. Religion itself has also given the occasion to spread this virus as well. Uh, a decent number of hotbeds of this virus have been attributable to religious services. Uh, there was even a case in Italy where a funeral for one of the first COVID-19 deaths cost almost a whole town 
to become contagious. So, so in a certain sense, religion, that is the actual practice of religion, no longer just a theor theoretical one, it being in fact fundamentally a communal practice, can be considered of being not responsible, obviously, but at least co-responsible of the spreading of this uh, for some uh, for, for some this religious disease. In, in some places there has risen a discussion even to, or there, there rose a discussion to temporarily open churches once again, especially for the coming Easter celebrations. So religion has, has, has this double aspect of, of trying to explain it, but on the other hand also maybe causing it because of its communal practice that it has, it, it has been from the very beginning. How would you react to that? Yeah, I mean, I think the first and most obvious thing that I want to say about this is that it's dangerous for religious communities to assume that their religiosity will immunize them against infection. I can't speak for other traditions, but as a specialist in the history of Christian thought, I can say that in my understanding of that tradition, Christian faith doesn't absolve Christians from the responsibility to act according to the best information that they have available, which means for the moment, avoiding large gatherings. The second thing though, and the reason why I actually find your question quite, uh, quite profound is that I, I think there's no way to render religious commitment entirely free from danger. So in relation to Christian commitment, at least, I think there's good reason to think that as uh, people like Kierkegaard have suggested that Christian faith involves a leap beyond the available evidence. It's not simply the conclusion of a, of a proof, but it, it necessarily goes beyond the evidence. That's the significance of faith. So this is one of the reasons I actually think that the reference to religion that you've made isn't so strange. I think the theological traditions uh, that we've been discussing have philosophical resonance today, partly because they tell us something important about the human capacity to sustain commitments that are not uh, proven, they're not certain. This is one of the things, as I mentioned in my book, uh, this is one of the things that I focus on. I think that hope is a discipline of the will. It's a kind of uh, resilience, a, a practiced resilience that enables people to en endure uncertainty of this kind. And actually, in my view, hope is necessary to sustain any commitment because any commitment, whether it's religious faith, interpersonal love, or uh, commitment to political action, any commitment that we might hold is actually vulnerable to disappointment. And for that reason, I think it requires this discipline of hope to, to sustain it in the face of that vulnerability. I think this, this uh, commitment beyond the evidence and the, a hope of this kind that's not constrained by rational calculation is dangerous in the way that, you're, in the way that your question is pointing to. But the fact is that in each of these domains of human life, whether it's religion, relationships, or politics, people don't actually constrain their behavior according to the kind of certainties that calculative rationality can provide them. And uh, I think that's, that's something important about what it means to be human. So the way that I think about it and the way that I work through it in my book is I think it's important on an individual level to feel at the same time two conflicting demands. So on the one hand, it's necessary to act responsibly based on the best knowledge that we have, while at the same time, I think 
we need to acknowledge our capacity to persist in commitments that aren't guaranteed to succeed. So for this reason, I think is a philosophical problem concerning human action. There's not a way to, to rule out the danger posed by what enlightenment philosophers call religious enthusiasm. So in a way, the, the somewhat crazy behavior of these religious communities that you're describing captures something that's sort of fundamentally human in a way that's important. But one of the things that I think hope offers in this context is actually a way to mitigate the danger because one of the things that I worry about the religious communities that you describe is that they claim a sort of false certainty concerning their invulnerability. And one of the things that I think is important and one of the, one of the ways in which I think responsible action can be sustained is by acknowledging that we actually don't know what's going to happen. So in recognition of our vulnerability, we need to act based on the best information we have in the moment. Mm -mm. That's true. Um, now, finally, uh, one uh, final question here is, uh, there is also one more aspect to the possible religious reading of this crisis, and that regards uh, the extremely religious decision taken by most of the states in the world. That was also uh, the topic of discussion in the, the other podcast. I, I am obviously talking here about the state of exception, that political operation that we are all too familiar with today that was theorized by the German legal scholar Carl Schmidt. And he said that uh, this uh, state of exception was an analogous to God's intervention in the world by means of miracles. So once again, here we have religion coming back and this time on the political scene. Yeah, so the first reason, as I've said, that I think the reference to religion is really appropriate now is that uh, there's this human capacity that's quite important, I think, to acknowledge and reckon with, to act in a way that's not constrained by uh, calculative rationality. But there's the second dimension that your question points to, which is sort of political and public. So I think Schmidt's account of the state of exception nicely captures the unruly, dangerous dimension of human life that I've been describing. In my reading, Schmidt's account of the state of exception responds to the, uh, the limitation of attempts by some political theorists to reduce politics to the mechanical operation of law. So as many of us are familiar, Schmidt describes the way in which every political system requires a sovereignty that's not determined by law. So um, to take an example, I think uh, the American theorist Paul Kahn's interpretation is helpful. You can think about when a judge rules on the application of a law to a particular case. The judge's decision isn't determined by the law itself. The law doesn't determine what the decision is. Insofar as the decision is required, the judge actually has to judge how the law in question applies and their judgment goes beyond the law in an important respect. Schmidt observed that this kind of sovereign decision, as he understands it, uh, has this theological dimension that your question points to, which is to say, uh, neither the, the miraculous intervention of God in the natural world, nor the sovereign decision is determined by the system that precedes it, it has this sort of excessive or eruptive character. And I think Schmidt's analysis uh, capture something that's really important about our current situation that many commentators have missed. I think there's been a, a, a focus on the sort of technocratic dimension of the crisis that we face, which is important. 
And as I've said, I think we need to act as responsibly as we can given the information that we have, but that's not the only thing that we need now. I think one of the challenges that we face is to, uh, is to reckon with the exceptional character of politics, this, um, the, the need in situations like this to suspend the normal um, system of law. So I think Schmidt's analysis suggests that the possibility of exceptions like this can't be eliminated. And I'm actually inclined to think that exceptional measures are justified by the threat that we're facing. But at the same time, as you, as you suggest, I think there's a danger that the exception can become the norm. We can live in what some philosophers have called a permanent state of exception. And I actually think there are um, examples of governments who are, are taking uh, powers upon themselves in a way that's really dangerous. You can think about Hungary. I think there are examples in a similar way in the US uh, and other parts of the world. So I think one of the challenges that we face is to, by, by acknowledging that we can't get rid of the exception in politics, I think it makes it easier to maintain a, a vigilance concerning the ways in which the exceptional uh, can become an excuse to perpetuate injustice or to sort of take on power that will become unshakable. And it can encourage us to, uh, to create uh, systems and to responses that try to limit um, the operation of such states of exception. But more generally, and sort of, I guess, tying together the, the various questions that you've raised as a whole, I think this eruptive extra-rational dimension of politics opens a sort of political possibility that's actually potentially hopeful. So I think the current crisis is a terrible shock and there's really intense suffering in it. I think the loss is real. And like many of us, I'm terrified about what's going to happen. I think what happens could be a lot worse from what we had before. But at the same time, insofar as this is a shock, I think like a miracle in a way, it sort of makes everything look different and it disrupts what we knew to be normal beforehand. And I think one of the possibilities that Schmidt's analysis points to is that we, we, have the, we have the option to try to imagine, to use this situation to imagine a world that's better than the one we were familiar with before. Well, thank you for this uh, very illuminative and imaginative answer, David. And this is also the end of uh, our first uh, discussion that we were going to have and uh, as you can imagine we still have an awful lot to talk about and we will do that in the following installment so thank you everybody for having joined us in this episode of Pick Voices and we hope you join us again soon for more with David Newhauser on religion and hope thank you David and thank you everybody for being with us thanks